Thank you for listening to Soho Bites, the only podcast in the world, as far as we're aware, dedicated to talking about films set in Soho, the beating heart of bohemian cosmopolitan London. If you would like to support the show, you can do this in the form of a star rating or review at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review. Or if you'd like to put a small amount of money where your mouth is, you can do that at SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Donations can be from as little as £3, which will buy at London prices about half a drink for one of our thirsty guests. You may hear some different URLs in the upcoming episode, but by far the easiest way is to follow one of those links. They are again SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash review and SohoBitesPodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to episode... Is it really episode 35 of Soho Bites? I've just checked, and yes, it is. I do know for definite, though, that Soho Bites is still the podcast in which we talk to people who love Soho and people who love film. My name is Dominic DeLaghi, and I am hot. Not in the obvious way, of course, that hardly needs pointing out, but in the sense that the weather in London today is very, very warm indeed. You might even say that it's... Hot, hot, much too hot to handle. But I like it. Usually on Soho Bites, as you know, we have two guests in each episode. We meet one of them for the first item, that's the support feature, as I like to call it, and then we have another guest for the film chat in the second half of the show. We're doing it slightly differently this time, and are talking to just one guest for both parts of the show. And that guest, David McGillivray, is not only a writer and a film critic, but also a filmmaker who currently has a film in pre-production. As you may know, David, who is making a return visit to Soho Bites, is the author of a book called Doing Rude Things, which is well worth a read, and is a history of the British sex film. Famously, Matthew Sweet dubbed him the Truffaut of Smut, and this makes him the perfect guest to talk about the film Zeta One, made in 1969. It's a spy caper slash sex comedy slash science fiction adventure in which semi-naked alien women kidnap other women some of whom are also semi-naked, and brainwash them, making them join their community of semi-naked women. I actually have no idea what on earth is happening in this film. It stars James Robertson Justice as the main baddie and Charles Hawtrey as his sidekick, plus more boob-jiggling semi-naked women than you've ever seen in your whole life, and it was made not in outer space, but in Camden Town. David reviewed the film upon its release in 1971, which is, you'll notice, two years after it was made. He gave it a terrible write-up back then, and, spoiler alert, he still thinks it's rubbish today. Find out just how rubbish he thinks it is in the second half of the programme, but before that, I'll be talking to him about a very different type of film, which actually requires a change in music. The film in question is The Wrong People, adapted by Dave McGillivray, from the 1967 novel of the same name by Robin Maugham. The book is set mostly in Tangier in Morocco, in an era when that town was well known as a safe place for all sorts of transgressive behaviour, including sex tourism. 
and it's the uncomfortable story of Arnold, a closeted gay teacher on holiday in Tangier, who gets sucked into the corrupting orbit of Ewing Baird, a wealthy expat with certain obsessions. When I met David to talk about his adaptation of The Wrong People, it was almost as though we were in Morocco, it was that hot, so the Warwick Castle pub in Little Venice, with its open frontage, was an excellent choice of meeting place. This also explains the odd bit of background noise you may hear, and the occasional taxi driving by. Normally, of course, I meet my guests in Soho, but on this occasion, for reasons that will soon become clear, this location, not far from Warwick Avenue tube station, was extremely appropriate. Welcome back to Soho Bites. Love to see you again outside of Ealing. Thank you, Dominic. Yes, it's been a bit of a schlep to get here to Warwick Avenue, but uh, as we'll discover, there's a reason why we're here. There is, yeah. We won't talk about that just yet. Uh, but you have a film. We don't normally do films that haven't yet been made on Soho Bites, but you have a film in, what do you call it, in pre-production or, or development? Can, or I think we can call it in pre-production, yes. It's been in pre-production for 50 years. Right. Um, you <laughs> You'll probably probably want more detail. Yeah, and maybe the name of it, that kind of thing. Oh, what it's about? Certainly, um, the name of the film is the wrong people, and the website is thewrongpeoplefilm.co.uk. You've you say fifty years. Mm. Is that an exaggeration or is that not really? No, that's when my association with Robin Maugham's novel, The Wrong People, began. This was in 1973. I was working for Pete Walker. I was writing his film House of Whipcord. And he told me while we were working on the script that his old Hollywood chum, Sal Minio, was in London trying to set up a film of the wrong people. And uh, Pete said, they'll never make a film of that book. I was intrigued. I knew nothing about it at all, apart from the fact that Robin Maugham also wrote The Servant. Mm. He's best known for that book. And so almost immediately the paperback came out. I read it. I thought it was a terrific story. And I agreed with Pete Walker. They can't make a film of this. And why is that? It deals with child abuse. And even in those days, it was, it was unacceptable. The time wasn't right to make that film. We now flash forward 40 years, and I was in a bookshop and saw the new Sal Minio autobiography, I beg your pardon, biography, and there was a long section on the wrong people. It told me everything I wanted to know about the uh, tortuous production, and uh, I decided then and there, oh, well, I'll make the film myself then. Okay. <laughs> Tell me about the book itself and the, the premise and the, the characters. The story of The Wrong People is based on author Robin Warm's own experiences in North Africa. Uh, during the war and indeed after the war, he became very, very aware of modern, shall we say, slavery. And uh, when he became uh, Viscount Warm, his maiden speech in the House of Lords was against this practice, which even in the 1970s was still going on. And the story is a fantasy, of course, but it's the kind of thing you can imagine could happen. Uh, um, a repressed English schoolmaster is holidaying in Tangier, uh, which has always been a uh, a hot spot for bohemians and he has the misfortune to meet 
an expatriate who wants the schoolmaster to get a boy from his school and bring him to Morocco so that he can be groomed. And the book poses the kind of moral dilemma that, that I love, you know. If we were in such a position, offered exactly what we wanted, how far would we go to break the law? It is a dilemma, isn't it? Because what's often presented in the book is the idea that the kids would be starving on the streets if they weren't performing sexual favours for these older expats. Also, Arnold, the, the schoolmaster character, will get to save one of these boys. And, well, he's called Ewing in the book, but he's called Clarence in your script, isn't he? Uh, for various reasons, we changed his name, yes. Okay. So the boy that Ewing stroke Clarence has chosen from Arnold's school could do with escaping from his terrible life as well. And he also sort of says it's not necessarily going to be sexual. It's going to be a journey of education for him and take him to the Parthenon and all this kind of stuff. Are, are the dilemmas still the same now as they were then, 50 years ago? The problem is, is, is still here, of course. Uh, it's just been brushed under the carpet <clears throat> much more. I mean, only in recent memory have all these famous cases come out of the woodwork. It's not an easy book to read. I don't think it's going to be an easy film to watch. You know, we're not in the business of giving people an easy ride. I want them to, to feel deeply uneasy mm. about the moral decisions that the characters have to make. Clarence is damn clever, you know. He persuades Arnold that he will actually be giving this boy a better life, you know. he's a pupil at a so-called approved school, it's like a reformatory, he's brutalised there, and uh, Clarence is, is offering him, as, as you say, um, a three-year tour of the cultural capitals of the world. What's the problem? Well, I mean, clearly there is <laughs> still a problem, and we want people to think about that very carefully. It's also a cracking good adventure. Oh, it's so exciting. He, he was a great writer. Yeah. There are two main characters, Arnold and, let's call him Clarence. There's not much moral ambiguity about Clarence. We, as, a, as a reader, we do not like him. Arnold is slightly more ambiguous. I mean, how, how do you feel about that? How, how you approach that? Because he does do some morally very dodgy things, but is it for the right reasons? You never, it's never quite clear, is it? Oh, no, there are no right reasons here. He's ruled by lust, and uh, he manages to convince himself that he is, as Clarence suggests, doing the right thing. And I like to think that, you know, a lot of people are going to put themselves in the position of Arnold and wonder, what would I do? Arnold is not uh, sympathetic. Uh, I don't want to spoil the ending of the film, but uh, um, this awful scheme doesn't work, of course. Um, I think the only sympathetic character in the, in the book and the film is the boy from the approved school because he loses everything. Yeah. And I think kids today who are victims of child abuse uh, are in exactly the same position. Everybody uses them 
And it's time, I think, to, to remind people that this problem has not gone away. So tell me a little bit about Robin Morm. He's a quite interesting character. Somerset Morm's nephew? Correct. Um, and a Viscount or something, I never understand. He did inherit that title, yes. Um, and he was the last of the line as well. He uh, served uh, in, well, he was in Tobruk during the war, um, storing up all, all the stories that he was later going to tell, both in uh, literature and in, in films as well. He was uh, the screenwriter of uh, two or three films. As I say, he was, he was very aware of uh, all the problems throughout uh, North Africa. After the war, he, uh, he went to Timbuktu, and that's when he realized that slavery there was absolutely rampant, and he engineered a situation whereby he managed to buy a man and then took photos recording the... Uh, uh, the moment when the money changed hands, and he took all this information back to the UK. And uh, that's when he went uh, to the House of Lords and exposed the whole scandal. And did that have any effect in the end? It did. He wrote a book about it uh, called Slaves of Timbuktu, and uh, it did have an enormous uh, influence on, on the way everybody looked at, you know, as I say, what is now called modern-day slavery. And Tangier... Um, at the time, and I'd heard of it as this place, this bohemian, louche place, especially for gay men. I think initially, from reading the Kenneth Williams diaries, he used to go out there, didn't he? Oh, who didn't? <laughs> yes. It was an escape okay. for gay men because they knew, I mean, from Victorian times, because Oscar Wilde was there as well, that they could get away with stuff that they couldn't get away with in the UK, in Morocco, blind eyes were turned. That seems quite odd in a way when you think about the Middle East now, much more religious society. You'd expect, you know, I've never been to Morocco, but I've had female friends go there and they, and they said, oh, you have to cover yourself up when you walk down the street and that kind of thing. Is that, is that all gone now, that kind of bohemian looseness? Uh, well, yes and no is uh, the answer to that. Um, we're talking specifically about one city, which is Tangier. And um, that was a kind of microcosm of Bohemia. And the Moroccan authorities, I mean, I can't go into all the history about how this happened, but they were prepared to allow almost any kind of thing to go on as long as they knew it was all going on in this one city. They could keep, even though it was a blind eye, an eye on it. And things were and still are much stricter in the rest of Morocco. Now, yes, gay men still go there for sex tourism, but, you know, you've got to be much more careful. Uh, it is illegal throughout Morocco, and there have been arrests. I'm due to go to Tangier for the first time. I know Morocco, but only Marrakesh, and uh, we're going to uh, Tangier to do some more location hun hunting. Um, I believe it's a sh shadow of its former self, but the... Uh, in quotes, it wasn't known as that, of course, gay bar, um, that Wayne's bar in the book and the film is based on, is still there. Oh, right. Um, but I, I, I gather that uh, the, the, it's um, a far cry 
from the way it was in Maun's time. <laughs> it's really called Dean's Bar, and Maun did used to go there. Yes, it's a real place. <laughs> wow. And the title of the book, The Wrong People, hmm. I think the quote originally comes from one of the, one of the Arabic characters says, those men over there, they're the wrong people, meaning gay men. But actually, it does feel a bit broader than that. It feels like it could be all those sort of drunken women who hang around. They're all sort of misfits, aren't they? It's, a, it's, a, it's definitely ambiguous, yes. Originally, it's, a, well, actually, a, a Spanish prostitute who's appalled by the idea of homosexuals and says, you are the wrong people. That's right. In the book, it's her, but in the script, it's, is it it's, Bashir or it, something? In the, in the screenplay, it's uh, one of our English expatriates who, who says that uh, her Moroccan servant referred to the wrong people, but quite clearly, Maum is talking about almost every character in the book they're very very unsympathetic characters you don't warm to any of them yeah so you're making it with or for peccadillo pictures tell me about them because i've had a quick look on the website is that basically they distribute and make films on lgbtq plus themes is it your company or is it a company that just you work for peccadillo is now um, the UK's leading LGBTQI plus <laughs> I can't remember no, me neither. all these letters Dom it's getting harder and harder anyway you know what I mean they're the leading distributor and uh, they've put out uh, a couple of my films and uh, I put it to them that they might like to get behind my first feature and uh, surprisingly uh, Tom Abel of Peccadillo said yes, and uh, he's been very supportive. We're trying to find a, a new producer at the moment, uh, and uh, that's the task that we've got ahead of us for the rest of this year. So they've put the money into it, or are, you, are they still trying to raise finance from various places? And Lovely idea, Dom, that anyone <laughs> should give me money. No, that doesn't happen. It's all mine. I'm uh, paying for the whole thing myself, as indeed I always have done. Um, no one has ever given me money to do anything. Why should they? I mean, it would be very nice to have more money, true. Have you got any fundraisers for it, or Kickstarters, any of those kind of things? Or? Uh, funny you should mention that. We're thinking about Kickstarter. Uh, I don't know what the situation is with that at the moment. Is it passé? Do people still give, give money? We're going to give it a go. I I've, got a, do, I've yeah. got a Zoom call on Monday about that, in fact. So any extra funds would not be uh, spurned, but we could virtually go out and uh, shoot it tomorrow of course we've had the most enormous problems over the past two years I don't have to tell you what they are but we were ready to start shooting at the beginning of 2020 and then something happened yeah. yes um, I like to think that we've you know profited by it um, we've tarted up the script a bit more we've met more people um, I wish we hadn't wasted two years that was too long but come on let's get on with it and think positive have you made any casting decisions or casting thoughts i tell you why i'm a bit out of date now with actors all my films i watch are sort of 50 years old 70 years old 
But the one person who had in my mind for one of the characters was um, Roger Allen. He does seem like the obvious choice, doesn't he, in a way? For as Clarence, yes. Clarence. Oh, well, he was on a dream list, yes, as was uh, Hugh Grant. But we've got to be realistic and realise that in all probability we're not going to be able to attract uh, people of that ilk. Um, but again, you know, we had started casting and we'd had the most marvellous tapes from all kinds of actors who were willing to give this controversial project a go, but then it was all put on hold. Okay, well, we'll wait to see who it is. And when, yes. when, when do you think we can see mm. the film? And will we see it on general release? We're now hoping to start shooting in May, um, which means that in all likelihood it might be ready for the end of uh, 2023. Probably, you know, it's not going to play the Odeon Leicester Square. I'm a realist. Um, but I think it will do the festival circuit and then play art houses. That's my guess. Okay. Well, we'll certainly plug it on Soho Bites. Will you? Even though it's not a Soho film as such. There's no real connections with Soho, apart from the fact that there is a reference in our screenplay to a very early gay bar that was in Soho, and Clarence mentions it. Is it on Brewer Street? Now, I've got to think where it actually was. Of course, you know, it no longer exists. Oh, so it's a real place? It's a real place okay. that did exist, a very early gay bar in, in the 1960s. It was in Soho, and I could probably take you one day to its location. That's good enough for me. I only need a very tenuous connection to <laughs> we've, Soho. We've to got it. We'll be heading back to David very soon at the Warwick Castle to get on to talking about Zeta One. But before that, let me just recommend that you go over to the show notes for this episode to check out some of the links I've posted there. You'll find information about The Wrong People, both the film and the book. In fact, there's even a link to the whole book, which you can download for free, as well as some biographical odds and ends about Robin Maugham, plus a very interesting short film about Dean's Bar, that notorious Tangier institution that David mentioned. That's all at SohoBikesPodcast.com. Hello, this is what's known as a mid-roll ad. It's one of those annoying interruptions that's inserted retrospectively at just the wrong point. And the reason for it is that Soho Bites takes up hours of time every month, and I'm hoping you might be able to support the show. There are two ways you can do this. One is for free, and it's to leave the show a star rating or kind review. You can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash review, or if you'd like to assist financially to help cover our costs, you can do that at sohobitespodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you very much. Apologies for the interruption and back to the episode. Well, it is now incumbent upon me to try in some way to explain a little bit about Zeta One before we go back to David. The music, as you can hear, is quite groovy. That's thanks to composer Johnny Hawksworth. You'll be familiar with his work if you've ever watched Man About the House or George and Mildred because he wrote the theme tunes to both of those shows. The film was directed by Michael Court. It was his only film who also co-wrote the screenplay along with Alistair McKenzie. Christopher Neem, son of Ronald, 
also had a hand in the screenplay, but very sensibly, he is uncredited. This is Angbia, a colony of beautiful women in a strange dimension of time and space. Fairest of them all is Zeta, the leader of the community with mysterious, unworldly powers. But on Earth, there is villainy afoot as the totally unscrupulous Major Burden seeks to acquire the secrets of their society. The Major's arch-enemy, Special Agent James Word, also has more than a passing interest in the Angvians. Always on the hunt for eligible young women, the Angvians resort to kidnap. Such is the strange, compelling story of Zeta One. The most significant person behind the camera, though, is perhaps the film's producer, Tony Tenser. He and his one-time business partner, Michael Klinger, were Soho through and through. Tenser was working in film promotion when he met Klinger, who was then running a strip club, and they quickly got together to form Compton Cameo Productions. Over the course of nine years, they released an assortment of titles, not all of which featured frolicking naked lovelies, but many of them did. By the time Zeta One was made in 1969, the two men had parted ways professionally and Tensor had set up Tygon British Film Productions. Tensor had produced several films before Zeta One under the Tygon banner, the most notable of which was 1968's Witchfinder General. So what to say about Zeta One? Well, it's not great, it looks shoddy, it's neither funny nor sexy and the plot is a mess. In this clip, we hear Robin Horden, our secret agent James Word, trying to explain the whole alien women Zeta business as best he can to Anne Olsen, played by Jutta Stensgaard. Uh, just to set the scene, they're lying in bed sharing a post-coital fag. Of course they are. But who is this Zeta? Zeta is a woman who runs a kind of colony called Angvia. What is it? Well, you see, there's this strange race of women. Women? Hmm. But not ordinary women. Why? They don't have any men. But how do they? They don't. Oh, how boring. Hmm. And they live in Angvia. Where is Angvia? I think it's out in space somewhere. Or perhaps it's not. Perhaps it's right here, on a different time scale or something. All I know is that it exists. The whole place is like a vast supernatural ant colony. The women, the Angvians, picked up from all over the world and by brainwashing processes conditioned for their allotted functions. Some of them become administrators, some workers, some fighters. Zeta herself is the queen ant. Who she is or where she originally came from is a mystery. But she holds the key to the whole setup. All the others have come from Earth. They're specially selected after careful observation. Then a kidnapping party is sent out. The girls are grabbed off the street, rendered unconscious, and transported to Anglia by some sort of time or space machine housed in a pantechnicon. In a what? A large van. Are you making this rubbish up? I wish I was, Yutta, but no, that is the story. You might think that that explanatory dialogue would have been taken from fairly early in the film, but it actually comes about 24 minutes in. Prior to that, we've had what feels like hours of padding, and as we'll hear later, 
the first third of the film, including the most tedious game of strip poker ever to have been played, was bolted on as an afterthought to increase the running time. The reason this qualifies as a Soho film, by the way, is that the next potential target for kidnap by the Angvians is a stripper who works in a Soho club. But I don't like to be 100% down on the films we cover on Soho Bites, so in the positive column I've placed a scene which is not too terrible. Our sort of hero character, James Word, attempts to go up in a lift, but this happens to be a very grumpy speaking lift. He could be construed as a satire on the 1960s white heat of technology, I suppose, but my main thought when watching it was to wonder if Douglas Adams ever saw this film. There are definitely echoes of Marvin the paranoid android here. Call out your floor, please. 13th. 13th what? 13th, please. Thank you. You just don't get any politeness these days. Here's me slaving up and down all day and never so much as a please or a thank you. People like you make me sick. We've stopped. That's right. Well, are we going on? You can do what you like. I'm staying here. This is my tea break. Couldn't we go up a few floors? You could have your tea break then. Why should I do any favours? Please? Well, all right. I don't know what the world's coming to. Everybody out. This isn't the 13th, it's the 12th. I'm superstitious. You'll have to walk the rest. Thank you. Get stuck. But you don't want to hear me whinging about Z to one. You want to hear David McGillivray whinging about Z to One. So, as Johnny Hawksworth's fab and groovy theme music reaches its crescendo, let us go back to the Warwick Castle pub in Little Venice and get the lowdown on the film from the true foe of Smut himself, David McGillivray. So, unfortunately... Because I'm dedicated to my craft, I always watch the film at least three times, and I've watched it one three times now, and that is enough for anybody, because it's, it's absolutely terrible. So just a little bit of background, which I've learned partly from your review, your contemporaneous review in, what's it called again? Film Bulletin? What? I have it right here, Dom. It's called The Monthly Film Bulletin, and I reviewed Zeta One in the issue of March 1971. In which you said that because it was based on a, a short story in Zeta magazine. A comic strip. A comic yes. strip. And you said that it blunts the satire of the original and it, quotes, magnifies its quite preposterous illogicality. Oh. Let's see if I can find it. Yeah, illogicality. Illogicality and silliness. <laughs> now, can you tell me the plot oh, please. of Zeta 1? Oh, dear. I would need another drink to do that. <laughs> There's so much to discuss with uh, Zeta One. The plot we can get rid of very quickly, though. What you say is true. I remember Zeta vaguely. It was a, a comic book for adults, and Zeta One is based on one comic strip in that magazine. It didn't last very long. A regular strip within the magazine, yes, was it? Okay. Yes. And because it's you know, pre-internet, decades pre-internet, it hardly uh, has a presence online now. So people don't know much about this magazine and they know even less, I would have thought, about this forgotten film, Zeta One. It's basically an amalgamation of uh, an espionage caper and a science fiction adventure. 
and it focuses on a race of extraterrestrial females called Angvians. <laughs> Now, I didn't know when I reviewed this film in 1971 that Angvia is an anagram of vagina. Yes. But apparently this is now common knowledge. Anyway, whatever <laughs> the case, the Angvians come to Earth, they kidnap Earth girls for reasons that aren't clear. There are two villains who want the secrets of the Angvians' superpowers, but they're defeated by the chief of the Angvians, the eponymous Zeta. Now, what the secret agent James Word has to do with this film, um, we may discuss this later, it's debatable, but he ends up on Angvia inseminating Angvians of his choice in order to uh, ensure the future of the uh, the race. Yeah, and he does this with the aid of Guinness and oysters. There's a woman who's chucking oysters and a woman who's unbottling bottles of Guinness. It's supposed to be funny, yes. Was it ever lost in the mists of time, Dom? We're going back more than 50 years. I, I mean, you gave it a terrible review, and I think lots of other people did also give it a terrible review. I mean, you've seen lots and lots of these sex films from At that the era. Time, I was seeing quite a few, yes. It doesn't seem to me to be any worse or better than it just, why did this do so badly compared to, I mean, they pick one at random, you know, all, all I can think of really is the Confessions films and they're not funny either or no, sexy. They were, or, they were huge successes and very profitable. What is clear now is that Zeta One is a salvage job, and I wasn't aware of this when I first saw it, you know. It was directed by one Michael Court, C-O-R-T, who never made another feature. <laughs> and uh, this is hardly surprising, perhaps, and allegedly he turned in a, a, a film that was an hour long. So they had to shoot a wraparound story There's now a 20-minute sequence at the beginning, which was all shot later, in which the aforementioned James Word tells... Um, who is it? I'm going to look at the cast. It is Jutta Stensgaard. Stensgaard. Yes, yes. He tells her about a previous mission. They play strip poker for 20 minutes. Oh, that strip poker scene. It's so boring. God, it just goes on. <laughs> But they needed it for the running time. Oh. And then everything else is a, is a flashback. Yutta, apparently, didn't want to take her clothes off. Same old thing, you know. So there's hardly any sex in this sequence at all. Uh, there's a bit of nudity. They persuaded her, I think, to get... Her, to get her top off usual thing. <laughs> But this, this has been heavily criticised by modern day critics. Back in the day, the film was hardly noticed at all. You know, it wasn't shown to the press. It got two or three trade reviews, one of which was mine. And then it went out uh, on a very minor circuit. I saw it at the Granada Acton in a double bill with a German sex education film called... What was it called? It was called Karma Sutra. <laughs> That was... It was torment. It's, it still is, talking of Zeta One. It, uh, I, you know, I have integrity. I did agree to watch it again. For this. But I was, I was clock-watching. Yeah. Yes. Oh, please 
stop this. You know, there's now 82 minutes of it. It's no better than it was in 1971. Actually, it, actually, it was made in 1969 and then shelved for two years while they tried to make something of it. Perhaps the reason other films did better, like the Robin Asquith films that made all that money, maybe there was some, at least the stories made sense. Or Because in, in Zeta One, it's so confusing. All these women with blonde hair and red miniskirts and and the, the flashbacks. And so James' word, well, that's mm. supposed to be a gag, isn't it? His word is his bond. Yeah. Get it? Yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Is <laughs> um, in bed with one blonde woman and then then two blonde women and then a different blonde woman and then it just I just I just found myself I, having watched it three times. I think I've watched different bits each time because I was always I'd always find something to do. There'll always be an email to to check or something. Yes, word of warning. You do need something else to do while watching this film. Yeah. <laughs> but then you can then then you can lose the plot. What? Exactly, yeah. Um the reason th- those films you're talking about were successful is that they came later in the British sex comedy um, uh, so this is a very early British sex film it was made right at the beginning of 1969 it it was just beginning to get going censorship was relaxing and by the mid 70s films like the confession series could attract major names from TV recognisable names and everybody went to see these sex comedies because they had so much going for them and then a rip-off of the Confessions films, the Adventures series. The first episode was in, this is Adventures of a Taxi Driver, was in the top 20 box office hits of 1975. It's, it's hard to believe that now, but mm. it's true. Because I was going to ask you who went to see these films, but it sounds like it was everybody. everybody. Yeah. Uh, by the mid-70s, these sex films, and there were so many, not just from the UK, but all over the world, they were playing in every cinema in the country. So if you wanted a night out, you know, the choice was, you know, a big blockbuster from Hollywood, or shall we go and see a confessions film? Oh, let's see the confessions film, it'll be fun. Because they would have been up against films like... So things like the Towering Inferno, there there's like blockbuster films, but also things like, you know, the Conversation and Marathon Man and Midnight Cowboy. Cowboy. These American films that were quality, quality films. British audiences apparently didn't necessarily want that every time they went to the cinema. They wanted a bit of knockabout fun. Remembered that these films were the equivalent of music hall. They appealed to the. Am I allowed to use the phrase "common man"? But you know, they they weren't playing art houses. Obviously, they were playing your local Odeon and ABC, and uh, they appealed to the kind of audience who went to the cinema every week to see a film. I need to think I need to process that connection. <laughs> that is quite an interesting thing, isn't it? So they were the equivalent of a bawdy night, yes. drunken night out in a Victorian music hall oh, with I can well imagine that, yes, yes. And off to the pub afterwards. Interesting. And Same I'm, kind of humour. Yeah. And I wonder watching them now, like there's a scene in Zeta One where James Robinson Justice is interviewing 
the stripper character whose name I can't remember. Nor can I. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of sits in the couch next to her, and there are a couple of gratuitous, superfluous shots where he, he glances down and he can see her knickers. I'm glad you mentioned this, Dom, because... Just, I mean, it's just sort of foul. True. But um, you've brought this subject up, so I, I have to deal with it. What became clear when I sat through this film again was that um, uh, I did my research and um, I was appalled, even when I saw the film in 1971, that James Robertson Justice was in it, and I said... It is difficult to understand how James Robertson Justice and Dawn Adams came to be involved in such a project. And my editor said, money. And, uh, <laughs> of course, she was right. But um, apparently um, James was uh, appalled by the film and he wouldn't come back uh, to do extra shooting. And it's clear that, you know, that scene you've mentioned is, has been inserted and it's accompanied by an actor doing a James Robertson Justice impersonation. Yeah. And that happens all the way th through the film. It's not a bad impersonation, but you can tell it's not him. And so that um, uh, enlivened it, the, voice the viewing. Wise, it wasn't, wasn't a guy in a beard. It was just, you just talk about his voice, aren't you? Just the voice. Yeah. Oh, well, allegedly, he's got a body double as well, but I didn't spot that. It's kind of grotesque. I mean, you expect, when it's hordes and hordes of women in bikinis wrestling and stuff, you think, well, that's just like, you know, just Totty, the sun, etc. But that, that particular thing of seeing the girls... Glancing at the girls' knickers did strike me as being a bit gross and um, a bit unpleasant. It wasn't uncommon at that time, we have to say. Um, that features in several of these films. It wasn't an issue in those days. And would that have been seen as funny or witty? Funny and sexy. So now, of course, it, it's neither. So this was now the producer, Tony Tenser. We're going to talk about him, yeah. I'm sure. He took over and had to make this film releasable. And it's alleged that a lot of the new material was his. Ha there are so many naked women in this film that I have a feeling it may have had some sort of appeal. There's not much sex. No. I mean, there's no, no sex at all in that <laughs> 20 minutes prologue. And there's very little in the rest of the film. But viewers would never have seen so many semi-naked women in one film. So Tony Tenser, he's an interesting character, isn't he? You, you who's known, known as the Truffaut smut, according to Matthew Sweet, you call Tony Tenser the Irving Thalberg of exploitation. And that's an interesting comparison, because Irving Thalberg is, is, Berg is known for kind of establishing the hierarchy of the, the producer is more powerful than that. The, the producer's the boss, you know, and, then, and actually died very young, didn't he, Irving Thalberg? Is that the same guy? It certainly was, yes. Um, so was, he, was Tony Tenser a kind of a mogul like that? Was he, 
because he produced a fair number of films and just kind of quit, didn't he, and went off to sell furniture in Lancashire? Uh, Southport, yes. Um, I think he deserves the title I gave him uh, because he was a real entrepreneur and he was passionate about the film business. Now, of course, you must love him because he and his business partner, Michael Klinger, were both Soho based. Mm. And uh, Tony Tensor was working for the distributor Miracle. Michael Klinger was running the Nell Gwynn Strip Club. They uh, joined together to form Compton Cameo Films and they made so much money out of sex films and running uh, sex cinema clubs that they were able to bring uh, an up-and-coming young Polish director to this country it was, of course, Roman Polanski, and he made Repulsion. Yeah. So they both had ideas above their station, you know. They didn't want to just make money out of filth. They had ambition. And when Tony and Michael split up, Tony went on and... Uh, he continued to encourage young directors. He gave so many young directors their first opportunity. And that's why I think he's, yes, he's the Irving Thalberg of exploitation. Wasn't it Tensor who decided to just shelve the film, Dita One, because it was just so, I don't know why, I assume because it was so bloody awful. It was, yes, uh, almost two years on the shelf. Uh, he did not know what to do with it. But, uh, you know, reluctant probably to just throw something away, he was determined to make something of it. The likelihood is, knowing him, eventually it probably made money. You can imagine it coming out on... I think Jezebel released it, which is a... They've picked it up later, haven't they, in later years, Jezebel? I noticed there was a, a Jezebel title on the front of the uh, file I saw. Yes, Jezebel were... Um, uh, now, you're going to have to remind me of his name, because I've, I've had a spritzer. Nigel... Anyway, he... Not Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> no, British distributor who loved uh, exploitation films. And uh, he brought out so many of them, including Zeta One. It wouldn't surprise me if one day this became a cult for all the wrong reasons. It has an interesting cast. We haven't mentioned Charles Hawtrey oh, yet. Um, struggling, uh, if I can use the word manfully, with the most terrible dialogue, but, you know, always fun to watch. He was a replacement for Frankie Howard, you know. They couldn't afford him I would have thought I think he's better than Frankie Howard I mean especially in this role he does he's kind of a Penfold character to James Robinson Justice's uh, God knows what yeah Justice is doing I don't think he knew either he was plainly fed up from day one and you can tell he's hating every moment of it apparently he had bits of the script written on his trousers and stuff apparently yes but Hawtrey would just give it his all, no matter what he was doing. And this isn't the first sci-fi film he did. He did another one as well. I watched Charles Hawtrey in this, and I, he didn't have the most glittering career. And I was reading the Roger Lewis biography of him, and it's all very sad. 
doesn't mention this film in it at all. I mean, that, that's of all the low points that he mentions in his career, he, he doesn't go that low. The film escaped, you know. Yeah. It, it went out and and was immediately lost yeah. until uh, it resurfaced on DVD. And the reason we're we're here, not in Soho, but at the, at the Warwick Castle pub, is because actually Charles Hawtrey's scene or one of his scenes is here is at Warwick Avenue Tube Station. They, they come out of uh, Warwick Avenue Tube, which is just round the corner. Um, I know that's why you picked this location, Dom, but we could, in fact, have gone to Soho because part of the film is shot there at a make-believe strip club called Tease, T-E-A-S-E, for two. Yeah. Get it? <laughs> but they come out of... Warwick Avenue tube station, turn left, and they're on Berwick Street. And they walk through the market, and then they're in Camden. Mm. I mean... That sort of thing didn't matter in those days. I find that sort of thing really irritating. Do you? Yeah, a little bit. When it's so blatant, it's like coming out, you know, turning left out of Tower Bridge and and the Eiffel Tower. (laughs) Bit of an exaggeration, but I know what you mean. Um, The reason they were based around Camden is that the studio was there. Yes. Do we want to talk about Camden Film Studios? Well, I mean, I've found virtually nothing about it. So I found out a bit more. Okay, what have you heard? So what you'll know and what uh, possibly some of your listeners might not know is that this was the first film shot in a converted space. Now, allegedly, it was a wallpaper factory. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, but it was in Albert Street in Camden Town and uh, it hadn't actually been finished by the time Zeta One started filming there and I think this was something else that James Robertson Justice, who was used to pine wood, (laughs) didn't like at all. It's possibly the only film that was shot there. Yeah, I think uh, it might have been, yeah. I've looked in the reference books and, you know, by the mid-70s it had gone. Where was it? Well, the only possible space I can find in Albert Street is Fitness First. I think that might be what was the Camden Film Studios. It's the only building of the right sort of size. I've had a look on Google Maps. It looks quite a posh street now. And I wonder if it wasn't in those days. I wonder if it was a bit more industrial. And It was very, very rough. I mean, mm. so many films made in the 50s mention Camden Town as a slum, which basically it was. And it was until it was... Uh, Regenerated in the 80s, 80s, Mm. I would say. Now you can't afford to buy a garage there. Uh, I did read that the person who set it up there, George Maynard, the idea was to have a a studio slash production facility that was not out in the sticks like Pinewood and Shepparton, but also not in Soho, which was expensive. That's a good idea. Fantastic idea, you know, a a miniature, smallish soundstage, of editing for your offices. Surprised it didn't take off. But then I suppose you that this is the start of the British film industry being carry-ons and confessions and adventures of taxi drivers. Uh, the idea was ill-formed, it seemed, and nobody really knew what they were doing. Zeta One uh, looks very cheap indeed. 
Um, apparently the, the two stages were very small indeed. Um, there's a, a reference uh, uh, in Zeta 1 to a so-called self-revelation room. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's basically um, tinfoil. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. all they could afford. Yeah. And I did rolls of tinfoil dangling yeah. from the ceiling. Oh. <laughs> I referred to that in my review as well. Uh, the way we're describing it, I know this for sure, Dom. We're, we're making people want to see Zeta One. Yeah, for all the wrong reasons. But I think if you know what to look for, it's probably mm, reasonable fun. I was watching it last night for the third time and my girlfriend got in and she said, what's this? And she sat down next to me and started watching it. And then I, I started to say something and she went, shh, shh, I want to find out what the, what the part is. I was like, seriously? You're, You're actually kidding. trying to follow the plot? <laughs> and this morning, and she went to bed halfway through this morning, she said, so what happened in the end? Uh, well, yeah. he, he, oh God, who Don't knows? ask. No. It's appalling. Those were the days. I mean, in a way, I wish we could make films like that now, you know. Um, so quick and easy, thrown together. I say, I mean, there are films like this being made that don't even go straight to DVD. They do exist. And I have a, a soft spot for them because it takes me back. <laughs> Never has a film with so many boobs and bums in it been so boring. It's, <laughs> it's just astonishing, like, oh, isn't it? God, how, how do you get away with that? Should we talk about the poor, unfortunate cast? I think we ought to, because it's another point of interest. Um, it stars an actor called Robin Horden as James Word. Um, you may not have heard of him. I wasn't awfully sure I had. But that's because, as with so many people in this film you know they, they gave up the profession shortly <laughs> afterwards and uh, Robin became a playwright and a very oh. successful one. Oh I didn't know that. He wrote stage farces and you might know the title of his most successful it was called Don't Dress for Dinner. Dinner. Oh. And it's been all over the world translated into I don't know how many different languages and he's uh, now um, not sure about this, but I think he's done very well out of it. Yeah, it, I think it plays a lot in these little theatres in expat communities in, in the Far East and places like that. I think you're right. I think you're right. So that's, that's Robin Horden, and he looks like David Warbeck. Anyway, you've got a, a, a lot of other interesting people in the film. We talked about some of them. We've, we should also mention the, the, the women who make brief appearances who are almost unrecognisable because they're done up in these ridiculous wigs and makeup. And one of them is the almost legendary Valerie Leon, just starting. Now, of course, she went on to much greater things. She's still with us. She's still a legend, still doing the conventions and an absolutely wonderful woman. I had a terrible time, apparently, making the film. She did as well? Yeah, um, I think they all did, yeah. Um, who told me? Adrian Smith. Dr. Adrian Smith, friend of the show, told me that. Really? Yeah, she didn't have much fun making it. I can't remember any more details than that. So, Did anyone have fun making it? They don't look as though, th though they were having fun. No. Um, <laughs> Carol Hawkins. Yeah. I don't know which one Neither she is. Neither of which us recognised her. She's in it, apparently, yes. <laughs> Who knows? 
and I don't know who played this part, but it's another joke. There's there's a secret agent who looks like Michael, Michael Caine. Caine. Yeah, it's and a, talks like him as well. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a hilarious. A lot of effort went into the humour, and it was all wasted. Yeah, but I did like Jutta Stensgard. I, I liked her. I thought she had a kind of a charm and a wit I haven't given these terrible lines about oh come over here and let me show you my bra but I, I did quite, I, I thought she had something about her that was quite appealing she was you know her whole career was wasted really she never got a decent part um, she's dubbed in this of course most of the women, women are is she dubbed yeah, I was saying her accent is really good because <laughs> she's Danish isn't she or something and now People will be writing in. She's either Danish or Norwegian. Okay. Scandinavian, though. Scandinavian. We'll, yeah, go, yeah, we'll yeah. go with that, yeah. yes. I think we've um, run out of things to say. Shall we go? Shall we get another drink? We've exhausted the topic of Zeta One, we Dom. <laughs> I don't know how we managed to spend so much time talking about such a bad film. Thank you to David McGillivray for coming on the show again to talk about Zeta One and the wrong people. And yes, how did we spend such a long time talking about such a bad film? Well, it was a sunny day, the drinks were cool and refreshing. How could we not? If you'd like to shower David with money to help fund the wrong people, I'm sure he would love that. So you'll find links to his social media and to the wrong people website on the show notes. And you will, of course, be wanting to watch Zeta One now, even though I strongly advise against it. There are plenty of copies available to buy online on DVD and all manner of trailers for it too. You can find all of that, of course, at the usual place at SohoBikesPodcast.com where you'll also find details about how to support the show with a few of your hard-earned pennies. If you want to get in touch with the show to comment, praise, criticise or make suggestions, you can do so on Twitter. The handle is at BitesSoho or by email on SohoBitesPodcast at gmail.com. And if you are so inclined, you can leave us a nice review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash SohoBites. And that will be very much appreciated. SohoBites is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and is based on an original idea by Dr. Jing and Young. We'll be back next month with some more Soho film chat and waffle. And until then, wear a floppy hat and plenty of sunscreen. And bye for now. (laughs) 